look into the eyes of the people that are on that side. The children are disappearing. Big Al. Thank you. One of the great um, joys of being here is that there's a, there's a freshness about your fellowship. There's a, a sense of the Spirit of God among you. And I love just being near so that I can look into the eyes of the people that's listening. And um, I go home blessed through being here. No doubt you would have um, followed the news on the historic moment when a Kenyan ran a marathon under two hours, albeit it was only 20 seconds. <laughs> but it was a remarkable achievement. Anybody pronounce his name? Kajaba. Eliud, Eliud Kachose, whatever. K-I-P-C-H-O-G-E. And um, he was interviewed and he talked a little about uh, the help that he received from uh, the pacemakers that were running with him. And we have to admire the ability of the Africans to run marathons. And uh, there was another Kenyan some years ago called Abel Kerwi, and uh, he was from Kenya. He won the World Championship in the marathon race in 2009-2011. He ran it in two hours, six minutes. So you can imagine the achievement to run it under two hours. This man, Abel Kiri, had run so many marathons. He won the Chicago Marathon in 2016. He won the Vienna Marathon. He won the Berlin Marathon. He was such an able marathon runner that in 2006 he entered the marathon as a pacemaker and ended up coming in ninth. <laughs> what an achievement. And so this idea um, of running a marathon uh, struck me um, as a, a parallel to running the Christian life. There's lots of parallels between running the Christian life, being in the race, and running a marathon. It, um, it requires endurance. It requires discipline. And it requires training. And um, it's not easy to run and complete a marathon. I have a little friend up in Motherwell who is a marathon fanatic. She comes from very lowly circumstances, um, but all her life she's been a fanatic to run marathons. So she's been running. The last marathon she ran was the New York Marathon. And she ran it in favor of CMCT and raised 3,000 pounds as a sponsor. And um, she gave us some insight into what it takes to run a marathon. And the months and months of training uh, to get her body prepared. I once did a little series when I was in Africa, of all places, because the Africans, um, they love running. And uh, I did a series once on five marathon runners in the Bible. Did you know there was five marathon runners? 
and uh, I'm going to tackle one of them today, and if God leads me, um, I'll tackle a second one next week in the afternoon. And uh, the one that I want to talk about today is Elijah. He was into running. We'll discover that. So let's read some verses in uh, 1 Kings. Um, basically, um, 1 Kings 19, uh, though we would catch just the end of chapter 18, um, because we want to make reference to the fact um, it says, for example, in verse 42 of 18, that Ahab prepared a feast, but Elijah climbed to the top of Mount Carmel and fell to the ground and prayed. Then he said to his servant, go and look out toward the sea. And the servant went and looked, but he returned to Elijah and said, I don't see anything. Seven times he was sent out to see if there was any rain coming. I think he would be getting a bit exasperated with Elijah. But on the seventh occasion, he said, there's a cloud the size of a man's hand coming up. And so um, he says to uh, Ahab, verse 45, sure enough, the sky was soon black with clouds. A heavy wind brought a terrific rainstorm, and Ahab left quickly for Jezreel. Now the Lord gave special strength to Elijah. That's very important. He tucked his cloak into his belt, and he ran ahead of Ahab's chariot all the way to the entrance of Jezreel. It was 17 miles from Mount Carmel to Jezreel. That was not a bad run. <laughs> and to run ahead of a chariot uh, that would have been getting pulled with horses. Now chapter 19. When Ahab got home, he told Jezebel what Elijah had done, and he had slaughtered the prophets of Baal. So Jezebel sent this message to Elijah. May the gods also kill me if by this time tomorrow I have failed to take your life like those whom you've killed. Elijah was afraid and fled for his life. He went to Beersheba, a town in Judah. That was a hundred miles from Jezreel to Beersheba. And he left his servant there. Then he went on alone into the desert, traveling all day. He sat down under a solitary broom tree and he prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life, for I'm no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down and slept under the broom tree, but as he was sleeping, an angel touched him and told him, get up and eat. He looked around and saw some bread baked on hot stones and a jar of water. So he ate and he drank and he lay down again. Then the angel of the Lord came again and touched him and said, get up and eat some more. For there is a long journey ahead of you. So he got up and he ate and he drank, and the food gave him enough strength to travel 40 days and 40 nights to Mount Sinai, the mountain of God. There he came to a cave where he spent the night. And from where he was in the desert to Mount Sinai was 200 miles. So he did a lot of running over these verses. Elijah was into running from these verses. After his great victory on Mount Carmel, which was an amazing victory, he had prayed for God in a miraculous way to send fire down on a water-drenched sacrifice that it might be consumed. And um, 
And then he slew all the prophets of Baal. And uh, God promised them that uh, he would send rain. And he did. And so he tells Elijah, he tells Ahab, run ahead into your chariot and get to Jezreel as fast as you can because the rain is going to deluge down and you will, your, the wheels of your chariot will be trapped with the rain that will come. But he ran ahead of the chariot. And this distance, he was in training for the next stage of his marathon running. 17 miles was nothing to what was ahead of him. And from Jezreel, he ran to Beersheba. And of course, eventually we've said to Mount Horeb, um, 200 miles away. And I want to suggest to you that Elijah, great prophet that he was, the Bible tells us in many respects, he was just like you and me. That's what it says in James. He was a man just um, as human as you and I. And so I want to think about Elijah in this journey and draw a parallel between Elijah's journey that he ran, and our journey. And the marathon often that we see that we're in as we go through our Christian life. I want to suggest that in his marathon running, he was driven by fear. The threat from Jezebel motivated him to run for his life. That's what it says. He fled for his life. He was afraid. But I also want to examine with you this afternoon in his marathon running, he was depressed by his feelings. He was overcome emotionally to such an extent he said to God, I've had enough. Take my life. And in a sense, if we're honest, there are some times in life where we go down and down where we don't feel any different than Elijah felt. There can be moments when we just feel so discouraged, so depressed, that we, we don't care if we live or die. And then, of course, in a remarkable and in a very compassionate way, the angel of the Lord, that's the Lord, he touched him. And I want to say something about the fact that he was not only driven by fear, depressed by feelings, he was dependent on the food that God gave him. He went for 40 days and 40 nights um, on divine protein as he ran that final leg of the journey. It's interesting that Elijah's greatest strength was the area of his failure. And that's often the case in life. His greatest strength was boldness. He stood on Mount Carmel against 850 prophets of Baal, undaunted, unafraid, challenged them to the uh, prayer for bringing fire from heaven. He was so bold that he has an exchange with the prophets of Baal that is quite remarkable. He says, cry louder. You're, in, you're praying to your gods to send fire, but he's not hearing you. He's maybe on holiday, or he's maybe in the toilet. Cry louder. He makes a fool of the prophets of Baal. He's so bold. And so the next moment, after such a victory 
The fire comes down. The the sacrifice is consumed. And he's running with great zest and with great power to Jezreel, the 17 miles. And Jezebel says, in the next 24 hours, you will be the same as the prophets of Baal. You'll be dead. And she puts a threat on his life. And suddenly, when he got that threat, it says he was afraid. Fear gripped his heart and he fled for his life. And he ran four marathons, a hundred miles to Bathsheba. The greatest weapon in the hands of the devil against us is fear. And when we begin to think through um, some of the challenges to keep going in the Christian life, we will discover that fear is a chief weapon in the hands of the devil. The instruction that's given to us in the book of James is, resist the devil. Don't let the devil um, overcome you with fear. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. (laughs) So uh, we asked the question this afternoon, are we running from the devil or is the devil running from us? Are we bold enough to take a stand against the evil one who would try to threaten us and undermine our faith? Fear comes in many different ways. It's something I think, well, for me anyway, I'm challenged constantly by fear. Sometimes we are afraid that we might lose our health. I don't know if you know it, but all his life, Billy Graham was paranoid about his health. <laughs> I'm a bit like that myself. And it's, it's so easy not just to say, Lord, I'm going to trust you with my health. I'm not going to get uptight. I'm not going to be fearful. I'm just going to live each life and tr- live each day and trust you. We could be driven by fear through not only health, even death. What does the future hold? And if we allow uh, any seed coming from the evil one to disturb and distress us about the future, then we might be fearful. We might be uh, afraid of, of failure in life. We might be afraid of of not having enough material sustenance to keep us going. Some people lose their job. I was at an assembly recently, and there was a fellow there that came in to the church, and it was just announced, high-powered job they had. But he just went in one day, and they said, you're fired. You're finished. And when he arrived that night at the prayer meeting, he was so upset, he sat and he wept at the end of the prayer meeting. It was such a shock just to get that kind of news. So the uncertainty could indeed cause us to be afraid. There might be some women who live in fear of their husband, but that wouldn't be true here amongst the believers. Jezebel was a ruthless, cruel woman who would not have hesitated to have taken Elijah's But 
rather than stand up to Jezebel and be bold enough to say, the Lord is with me and I'm not going to be intimidated by your threat. It says that he was afraid and fled for his life. And as we join him in his journey and his marathon running, we find him eventually on his own. After leaving his servant at Beersheba, Elijah, it says, went on by himself, traveling alone in the desert. You have the impression from the passage that he ran and he ran until he was exhausted. And then he collapsed under the shelter of a broom tree. And uh, he lay there in such a depressed state it says he prayed that he might die. I've had enough. I'm a failure. I'm no better than my forebears, my ancestors. And sometimes the sense of having failed in your Christian life, having been defeated for some reason, you just go into a state of depression. He considered himself such a failure, and his life and his ministry was of no further value. And they thought of ending his life, and they asked God to take him, take his life. You know, the strange thing was, he fled from Jezebel because he didn't want his life to be taken. She threatened to take his life, so he fled to save himself, and now he's under the juniper tree, and he's saying to the Lord in prayer, please take I don't want to live. Is it possible for a Christian to find themselves in that situation? I want to suggest to you that it's become much more apparent than it would have been in previous years. But mental health is a major issue in the country. The government are having to pour extra resources because so many people are suffering from depression, or from mental health problems, and Christians and the church is not immune from these issues. In bygone days, <laughs> it would have been an admission of weakness and failure to say, I'm depressed. And uh, there was a view held by Christians that you, you cannot, you shouldn't be depressed. You've got the Lord. What do you need to be depressed about? That is an unrealistic situation. There are many people living today in such circumstances, whether it be a single parent, whether it be in family life, whether it be all different kinds of stresses, and so they are vulnerable to mental health issues. They're vulnerable to depression. And this idea that everybody should be on the mountaintop, you know, and singing hallelujah, doesn't work. The reality is that we do suffer from depression. And uh, especially if you're in church life and in any form of leadership, I can guarantee there will be such an attack upon you that it would easily lead to being overwhelmed with depression. Church life today was never more difficult than it has been in the years gone by. So many people with so many different problems that require pastoral sensitivity and care 
and getting alongside people with their problems. And so um, it's interesting to recognize that in Elijah's case, this great prophet who accomplished so much for God on Mount Carmel, he's, he's a wreck of a man lying under a tree and has no, has no desire to live. The beautiful part of this whole story of Elijah, of course, is that God never gives up on anyone. And uh, you cannot run away from God. For God will run after you until he reaches you, as he did in Elijah's case. No matter how many marathons we engage in. And at times, people do run away from the church, run away from God. Life has become so difficult and, and problematic that we think the only solution is to get away. Elijah tried that. And when he got into the loneliness of the desert with no servant near him and nobody else around him, God was there. God was there. And God understood his feelings. And um, it's very interesting to recognize the prayers that God hears and answers and the prayers that God hears but doesn't answer. When Elijah prayed on Mount Carmel for a miracle, for fire to come down from heaven and consume this water-drenched sacrifice, God heard him. God answered. I am very encouraged to hear that your prayer meeting on a Thursday night at the moment, is going well. And the numbers of people are coming out. It's good. And I would encourage you. That the secret for an assembly to be healthy and to be going forward is the prayer meeting and prayer. We don't need anything. <laughs> I was going to say, you don't need anything other than prayer, but you do need to have plans and you do need to have an outreach. But I have discovered in my life, after all these years that I've been a Christian, that more can be accomplished through prayer and prayer alone than nothing else. Now, on a Thursday night, make sure you devote as much time as you can to prayer. Don't let it get swallowed with reports and talks and all the rest of it. The devil keeps us to the minimum of prayer time. That's why I have arranged for the past four years to have a quarterly prayer meeting in GLOW for the world. And I don't allow those who are given reports any more than three minutes to give us facts to pray about. That's why I say to you, come if you can on the 1st of November and join with us for another World Prayer Focus. And George Verver, I don't know a man who prays more. He prays eight hours a day. That's his commitment to prayer. And he prays for the world and he has so much knowledge of the world and he's over 80 and I doubt if he'll ever come back to Scotland. So this is his final visit. Do try and come. And be encouraged to devote yourselves as a little church to more prayer and you will see more miracles. Here was Elijah praying for his life to be taken and God is so good that he doesn't answer his prayer in, a, in, a, in the way that he asks. Sometimes God is very gracious and he doesn't give us what we ask for. 
And we need to understand that. What Elijah needed was food and sleep. The basics of for life. It says after he slept a while, he was wakened by the angel of the Lord. That little phrase often um, is a way of expressing that it was the Lord. And the Lord touched him. You know, there's a lovely uh, little study in looking at different people, even in the Old Testament, whom the Lord touched. For example, in the book of Genesis, when Jacob was wrestling and struggling with God, for he had to go back and say sorry to his brother Esau. And if you have to go back to someone and say sorry, you'll have a struggle. And it says the Lord touched him and knocked the hip joint out of joint. And he never was the same after that. The Lord struggled with him and pained him in such a way. It was the touch of consecration. In the book of Jeremiah, the young teenager that God called to be a prophet to the nations, he says, I cannot do what you're asking me to do. I cannot speak. I'm inexperienced. I'm inadequate. I'm, I'm, too, uh, I'm just not able. And the Lord says, I'll give you the words to say. And it says the Lord touched his lips. The touch of commission. And so he became an outstanding prophet. For God touched him. If in Jacob's case it's the touch of consecration, if in Jeremiah's case it's the touch of commission, here in Elijah's it's the touch of compassion. God doesn't write Elijah off for running from Jezebel. He doesn't lecture him or rebuke him. He draws alongside and he says, Elijah, here's some nice fresh baked bread and fresh cool water. That's what you need. And lie down and sleep again. And it's just, sometimes uh, it says that Elijah ate and drank and lay back down to sleep. And the Lord could have said, well, I've given you an opportunity, Elijah. I'll just leave you if that's how you feel. It says he never said any grace for his food. Just lay back down again. But the Lord touched him a second time. The Lord is so patient, so gracious with us. He doesn't give up on us. And he says, you need strength for the journey that's ahead of you. In order for you to get to Mount Horeb, the mountain of God, you need to be dependent on the food that I give you. And he, he went in the strength of that food for 40 days and 40 nights. It's an amazing miracle. The food had divine protein in it. This long journey that um, Elijah had, he needed energy for his spiritual journey. And so each one of us, in our marathon journey as a Christian, in order to get to the end of the finishing tape, we need divine energy. We need divine strength for day by day. So how do I get this food? How can I be dependent on the food that God provides? The food is in the Word of God. 
Here is our food. Paul in the New Testament tells us that the Word of God is like milk and it's like meat. And we need both. He said to the Corinthians, you boys should be on meat and you're still on milk. And so there's a, there's a need for um, receiving the provision that God has made. Have you ever been at a point in your Christian life where you've said, I've had enough? Sometimes in church life, when tensions are strong and feelings run high, and you think, I've had enough. And you feel like giving up. In marathon running, as I understand it, though I've never run a marathon, I couldn't run 100 meters, never ran a marathon. But they say, my wee friend that I told you, Esther Baxter, who runs so many different marathons, she said there is a critical point in a marathon where you feel like giving up. She says usually it's about 18 miles in. At that point in the marathon, your energy and your determination wanes, and you just need somehow the, the, the grit to keep going. She says the secret for her is to drink at that point beetroot juice. You ever heard the secret of beetroot juice? That's what would have helped her. And you know, the Apostle Paul was aware of the great challenge to keep going and no giving up. And one of the great chapters that he wrote in one of his letters, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he says to the church at Corinth, he says, we don't give up and quit. And he cites, it's a very wonderful chapter, let me just read one or two uh, verses from it to remind you, uh, although you probably know the chapter I'm referring to. And um, Paul says, 2 Corinthians 4, he says, we are pressed on every side by troubles, but we are not crushed and broken. We are perplexed, but we don't give up and quit. We are hunted down, but God never abandons us. We get knocked down, but we get up again and keep going. And then further down, he says, that is why we never give up. Though our bodies are dying, our spirits are being renewed every day. For our present troubles are quite small and won't last very long. Yet they produce for us an immeasurable great glory that will be and will last forever. So we don't look at the troubles we can see right now. Rather, we look forward to what we have not yet seen. And so... This is Paul's word to us. If you're in a marathon race called the Christian race, it will be tough. There will be challenges that will bring you at sometimes to that point of giving up. And Paul says with great determination, we don't quit. We don't give up. We may get knocked down, but we're not knocked out. And we'll get back up. And we'll keep going. And uh, I've often quoted, um, and I was quoting it, I was quoting it to a wee friend, and I want to ask you to pray for him. His name's Paul McLaughlin. 
He came to the GLOW course 10 years ago after having been rescued from a life of, of sin and alcoholism and all that uh, would be associated with that. He was only two years a Christian and he came over to spend a year at GLOW. And I got to know him well. One of the reasons I got to know him well was that I encouraged him for his field placement of six weeks to go to India. And he went to CMCT. And he loved Chennai. And he loved Colleen Reddit. So much so that he repeatedly went back. And on that course, he met a girl, as they often do in that glow course. <laughs> if you're thinking of a partner, Kellyanne, then join the glow course. <laughs> you have every chance. You have a great chance of getting a husband. So he met this girl who was a good lump younger than her, than him. Fell in love, got married, and at least on one, if not two occasions, he took Rachel with him and his little child to India. And then the two of them got involved greatly in the work of the Lord in Edinburgh. They worked in the rehabilitation center down in Leith for a while. And then he joined an organization that has got a great vision to church plant in difficult schemes in cities. And uh, it's called 20 Schemes. And they have a church in Nidre, the mother church. And out from that mother church, they have um, three or four satellites where they're trying to church plant amongst some of the most difficult people that you could reach. And there, Paul and Rachel was in an area called Bingham. And they've, over the past couple of years, they've seen 18 to 20 people reached. For the past year, Rachel has been struggling with depression. Perhaps with the circumstances they were working in. And three weeks ago, Paul came home from work to find Rachel was dead under tragic circumstances. She hadn't picked up the wee girl that was at school. She's six years of age. The other wee girl of two was in the house at the time. I met him just recently and tried to sympathize and help him. He's absolutely broken to pieces. Pray for Paul McLaughlin that he might just have his heart. And I said to him, Paul, one of the greatest speeches that Winston Churchill ever gave in his life was the shortest speech he ever gave. He was invited to a boys' school to do an oration to these boys, to give them some form of, of guidance or encouragement. And he stood up in his famous gruff voice, fight them on the beaches. And he only spoke five words. And he sat down. And his five words, as he looked out to the sea of all these boys in that boys' school, never, 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 Give up. And he sat down. And that speech has been remembered by so many. And that's the word that I bring to you at the end of this little message. Never, never, never give up. Let's pray. Father, I just want to thank you for our day here at Townhead. Thank you for the church.
and for its progress, for its growth, despite having some challenges and issues that they've had to face. I pray that you'll, you'll give them such a desire to meet that the whole church will meet on a Thursday night and give themselves to prayer. And you will continue to bless them and bring in people as you did this morning. We thank you for people there this morning that are not saved and needn't to be saved. And we pray they'll come back next week. And we pray too that the Holy Spirit will work and that people who hear the gospel will receive and believe the gospel. So, Father, for those in this fellowship who are in particular need with their health, would you lay your hand upon them and give them to know your presence and your peace. And remember those, Father, in family circumstances that sometimes would be too private to share in a public meeting. And pray for single parents who have to care for their children and be both mother and father to them. And so, Father, for those who are elders in the church, give them that touch of compassion to reach out to people who are exhausted, both physically and spiritually. So bless this little message. We trust that it's been the Lord's message and that people will go home the better for being here. We ask this in Jesus' name. Now, for next week, if it's possible for you to...